Salam and welcome to our podcast, Muslims on Fire. Stories from ordinary Muslims doing extraordinary things. With your host, Maruf. Dear listener, Based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams, and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Hey, assalamu alaikum. This is Muslims on Fire. This is your host, Maruf. Today, I have a very special guest. I call this person my mentor, a very good friend. We have known each other for some years now. He's... Uh, over the years has been, you know, featured as one of the top 500 influential Muslims. He's a serial entrepreneur, alhamdulillah. MashaAllah has done so many for Muslim community. Um, he's also the, the founder of a very well-known halal restaurant guide. It's called Zabiha. It's just one of his projects, but today we're going to deep dive to his life story. Hopefully we can get inspired. So, ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Mentor, advisor, Shahid Amallah. Welcome, Shahid, to the show. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me here. It's we are honored. We're honored. So, Shahid, as we as we said, um, we would like to you know pick your brain, and we gonna we would like to go through your like life story and try to understand how things come about, and hopefully to see, hopefully to learn a couple of things or two. Um, having said that, uh, let's start. Um, tell us about uh, what. What do you remember about your childhood, like like memories? What do you think have shaped you? Do you think looking back now where you are, what do you think have shaped you who you are? What would you what what would it be if you look back? Well, th there's a very particular experience that Muslims who were raised in the West have, um, and that is when you're surrounded by people who are not like you, you start to ask yourself questions about who you are. You know, and what and 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 what this thing called Islam is, because mm -hmm. unlike a lot of other places where you know you would grow, you know, where people are surrounded by Muslims, when you're not surrounded by Muslims, your identity um, kind of is is a multifaceted identity. It's based on the your neighbors. It's based on your larger community that you're 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 participating in. It's based on your parents and how they transmit to you. Uh, your religious beliefs, uh, your mosque communities. Uh -huh. um, and growing up in uh, Southern California, um, frankly, a lot of people thought I was Mexican. So people would come <laughs> up to me and start talking, speaking in Spanish. And, um, and so this idea of being Muslim was a very personal one. I mean, this is, you know, this is the days before 9-11. This was even before the days of like, you know, uh, the Iranian revolution and things that, made Muslims front and center in the news the way they are today. I see. So there was a little bit of an anonymity. And so it, it, it provided a little bit of a space to try to figure out who I was without the pressure of the external world. 
I see. And I was lucky enough to grow up in a community that really was focused on what it means to be Muslim in America. Um, the, there was a saying at the mosque I grew up in that um, home is not where your grandparents came from. Home is where your grandkids are going to grow up. Okay. And so with that kind of attitude about home is here, the question turned to what does it mean to be Muslim here? And, and, and even though we didn't give, we weren't given the answers to that, having that question put in my, in my head meant that I would continually ask that question throughout the course of my life. What does it mean to be Muslim in America or the West? And, and, and how do I impact society around me? Uh, ideally in a positive, you know, beneficial way. And so every decision that I made, whether it's been, you know, political, media, entrepreneurship, whatever, it's always had that in the back of my head. And so that was kind of like the founding kind of idea behind every direction that I went in. That's very and, interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, I mean, but let me, let me ask a question. Were you born in US or, or? Yeah. Okay. I was born in I was born in Hollywood, California, in a building okay. that is currently the, the headquarters of the Church of Scientology. It was a hospital back then. Okay. Um, my parents were what I call burn the boat immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that when they came here, they they wanted me to have very little connection to where they came from, which was India. I see. They did not teach me their native tongue. They mm -hmm. did not keep me in touch with any relatives that might be there. Um, uh, they, they purposefully wanted me to be, you know, in this space only. I see. Um, I think it's be for a couple of reasons. I think one is because I think they thought I would adjust better. And secondly, I think they really wanted to, um, they, they, they really wanted me to have, to integrate into to the point where I, I, I would be successful. Now I have regrets about that. I don't, I don't think it's right. I think to keep people separated from. Yeah the places of origin. I wish they taught me Urdu. I wish, you know, these are things that I cannot pass along to my kids because I didn't I get them. But having said that, it did orient me in a certain way. So I did not look overseas for my guidance as to what it means to be Muslim. I looked to my peers, I looked to my surroundings, and I looked to influences that may not even be Muslim, right? Because I wanted to figure out how can Islam take root in this country in a way that is native to this country, right? And so I looked, for example, to African-American uh, Muslims who had trod that path before me in terms of being Muslim and American mm -hmm. and, 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 um, and tried to figure out my identity in, in those ways. Well, I mean, it seems that uh, in a way, like, so you're, what you're saying is your parents kind of try to isolate you to, so you can adjust better. So what about, yeah. the, what about um, Islam? Like how... Oh, I'm like, how, 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 I'm trying to ask you, I guess, that how they were yeah. practicing in, in that sense, or they were also trying to kind of limit you from that sense as well? When you were no, um, as a matter of fact, they didn't. Um, but I will say this, I mean, I grew up in a single parent, single parent household. Okay. And much of my religious education came from a mosque that I went to primarily because it was right next to where my father worked. I see. It wasn't because my father chose it. But, 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 you know, Alhamdulillah, it was a mosque that of every mosque, any mosque I could have gone to was the one that really could have nurtured me as a child. And it really, it was a mosque that, that, that put, you know, youth in charge of their own programming. It was a mosque where uh, youth were made to feel like they were part of a Muslim community and not an ethnic community. Um, and so I feel a lot of my kind of religious 
um, you know, development happened at the mosque. And, um, and, and because it had that kind of outlook, I didn't feel like I was like trapped between two worlds. I think the way a lot of other people were, I really did feel like I was, you know, I, I was, I was a Muslim by birthright and I was an American by birthright and nothing was going to take me away from that. Um, and I didn't feel like I was growing up in two countries or something like that. I mean, and again, I, I wish it wasn't that way for me because I think there's, you know, I, I feel like I've been spending my whole life trying to reconnect with the Muslim world in a way that I was prevented from me, you know, when I was, you know, in my family life. But, um, but uh, I think, alhamdulillah, I think it did set, it did, it did set the groundwork for all of the work that I would do as an adult. That's amazing, right? So you, you saw like your, your, your mosque in a way was your connection, I guess, to yeah. the Islamic world. That's interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Very yeah, interesting. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about your, um, school years high school years how was it like to be in those area you know in, in that era like, to be a muslim in well, South- uh, because it was it was still a curiosity to be muslim mm-hmm. i mean there's only a handful of muslims at my school at my high school um i mean i don't remember i mean this, this seems kind of hard in, in the days of trump to like look back at something <laughs> like this but i don't i don't remember a single instance in high school where my being muslim was held against me i see that's good or, or that I was made fun of or anything like that. I mean, I would fast, um, people know I'm Muslim. I mean, as a matter of fact, I remember there's one thing that really um, car- I carry with me to this day. My, uh, one of my teachers in high school, uh, we, we, every, every, um, every school has a point where for one or two weeks they talk about Islam. And my teacher said, okay, for the next week or two, we're gonna be talking about Islam. Islam is covered in pages X to Y in the textbook. <laughs> she said, I want you to ignore the book because uh-huh. I think it is wrong. Uh-huh. And I am going to give you my own material. And we have Shahid here in the room. And he, she said, Shahid, if anything is wrong, let me know. I see. That was very brave, right? Isn't it? It was. It was. And it was, I mean, I really did, again, feel included. And I wasn't made to feel kind of weird or, or, or I mean, I, I compare that experience to, for example, my children, when they're learning about Islam in high school, and people kind of like look at them, and they're like, Hey, don't look at me, man. <laughs> I, this is not my problem. It's not my, I, you know. But 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 uh, it's it's a different. I, I don't I want to say I don't want to say it's a more negative experience for my kids. It's a, just a different one. I see. Because my kids are also my kids are growing up in a space where uh, I was I grew up very kind of, you know, almost anonymously Muslim. Mm-hmm. My kids are growing up in a way that where they're very you know, visibly Muslim. But in the age of Trump, all my kids' friends are like. You know, if anyone comes for you, I'll defend you. I see. Right? I see. Um, so, so it's 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 not it's qualitatively different, right? But it's still, you know, alhamdulillah, it's still a very positive thing. Now, I don't want to I don't want to imply that that's the same way for all Muslim kids in America. Sounds good. But so, alhamdulillah, they happen to be in good schools. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in schools, yeah, they're kind of liberal-ish. Childhood questions are sponsored by Ali Huda. Ali Huda is a video-on-demand streaming platform for Muslim children where they can watch cartoons and shows while learning about Islam the fun way. If you are a Muslim parent, this will be one of your best investments. Visit www.alihuda.com for a seven-day free trial. Now back to the show. That's good. I mean, it seems that you had the easier childhood at school. That's so good. So tell yeah. us, tell us more about that. When you finished school, like, what were the thoughts going through your head? Yeah. I mean, what what so, did you like so, to do? 
when you're growing so up? So what's really interesting is that, you know, I, I, feel that, I felt I had a good foundation of an Islamic identity in high school. I think, again, growing up at this mosque was really, really good for me. The Islamic Center of Southern California, I might as well kind of give it a shout out. Um, and I went to college at UC Berkeley in Northern California. Mm -hmm. And I think it was there that I really started to ask myself, okay, you, you, you have an understanding of what it means to be Muslim personally. What does it mean to be Muslim socially and collectively and, and in, in the broader environment? So um, I found myself in a position where I was much more of a public representative of Islam among a group of people who were not Muslim and a group of people who were much more kind of, you know, uh, in touch with the news and questioning and things like that, right? And so that's where I had to start navigating, okay, what does it mean to be a Muslim when you're at a school with people who are not Muslim, people who are evangelical Christians, people who are LGBT, people mm -hmm. who are, you know, like name all the different kinds of groups of people and how do I navigate that? And that was a really educational process for me because, you know, uh, people were generally kind and understanding. But, you know, I also had to ask myself really hard questions about what does it mean uh, to be Muslim in the space, particularly as I started to get involved in student government. So I, I, I was a student body senator for three years. I was vice president of the whole school my last year. And as such, not only was I public representative of Islam and Muslims, but I was also given a public trust. So like, I, I can't be seen, for example, to be advocating just for Muslims. I have to advocate for everybody because everybody elected me. Um, and so it was really interesting to try to kind of like balance those because I also wanted people to feel that I'm not there to be an apologist for Islam. I'm mm -hmm. not there to be a promoter of Islam. I'm there to be a Muslim. And if your life is benefited by, by my action, then I would like Islam to get the credit, not me. Um, uh, and, 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 and that kind of shaped the how I would be a public Muslim moving forward after college, because that seemed to work best for me. I, I would I would try to be kind to people. I would try to serve their needs. I would try to, you know, uh, not overly look at my own community. Um, but in turn, what that would do is that, you know, I you don't have to, you know, the, sometimes the best way to defend your community is to defend other communities. Because yeah. then what they do is then they defend you. And Absolutely. so while I was in college, you know, you the, the first Gulf War happened. And, and because I had gone out on a limb to support other communities that were not like me, when that time came for the Gulf War to you know, mobilize people and get out in the streets, um, I had social capital that I could cash in and people did um, 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 follow my lead. And uh, that started to turn in from, from campus leadership to, again, um, to, to kind of national notoriety because then it, at those days, then I started getting asked to be on like national TV shows to talk about this kind of stuff. And that's where that whole thing started, right? Um, where I really did have to again ask myself even bigger questions about what does it mean to be a public Muslim? Absolutely. I mean, it seems that you kind of took like conscious decision to be say, okay, this is who I want to be, but not just uh, ordinary people. I just want to be, you know, someone in a position of leadership and actually want to represent. I mean, I, I, I would like to, Kind of represent, like, show the you know the positive side of Islam, not just uh, not just. What, what, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but, but, there's, but there's, there's, a, there's a there's a way to do it though. So like, there's 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 three different ways you can engage the public. Okay. And this is a, this is something that I've talked about with respect to media, but also entrepreneurship, and we'll get to that. Um, one is by us for us. I'm going to do something that serves me and my community. Mm -hmm. Now. Other people can tolerate that, or they could look at it as something you know interesting, or they could resent me because all I care about is myself. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm not truly going to impact people outside of my group when mm -hmm. I do that. 
And then there's by us for you, mm -hmm. right? Meaning all I'm going to do is I'm going to be in public relations mode. And I'm going to go in front of the cameras and say Islam is peace and defend Muslims and whatever. Now, I'm not going to look at actually making my community a better community. I'm not going to ask the hard questions that I think our community needs to ask. I'm simply going to go up there and just be a defender, right? Mm -hmm. And we live in an increasingly savvy media consumption environment where people can see right through public relations hacks. Yeah. Um, and, and, and if you're not, you know, like in the days after 9-11, we had a lot of people just going out in the cameras and saying, Islam is peace, Islam is peace. Well, the average onlooker is saying, okay, well, I can't reconcile your words with what just happened in New York. Yeah. It doesn't right? make sense. And, 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 and I don't want to give you the benefit of the doubt, but you're not even giving me an answer. You're, you're <laughs> like, I'm afraid. I'm genuinely afraid based on what I see. And you're basically dismissing my fear. Yeah. And, 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 my, and, I don't, and I'm not crazy. Like, my fear is not irrational fear. Something just happened. And it came from, quote unquote, that part of the world. And unless you're going to give me an honest answer about that, then I'm going to continue to be afraid. So that's the dangers of the buy us for you model. I see. Now, the third model, which is the model that I've tried to live my life long, um, is buy us for everybody. Meaning that we do things in the public square that serve both us and you. So, for example, in the media space, that means having honest conversations about what happens in our community, but letting everyone else into that conversation. So we can talk about things like FGM. We can talk about things like, you know, um, about the about wealth discrepancies in our communities. We can talk about um, identity formation in our communities. These are really important internal conversations to have, but I also think it's really important for people outside our communities to see that we're having these community conversations. Because at the end of the day, people don't want to just, people don't want to see us as perfect. They want to just see us as human. Like yeah, they, we don't have to have the answer, but we at least have to be asking the question. And I think for 90% of people out there, the people who aren't like hardcore anti-Muslim people, as long as we're asking those questions, honestly, I think they'll be like, you know something, as long as you're aware that there's an issue and you're dealing with it, I'll give you some space. Yeah, right, right, right. right. And, and at the end of the day, we have to act in the public square in a way that benefits everybody. Because if we don't, then we will just be seen as not a part of that larger community, um, that they, they will not have a vested interest in protecting us. Mm -hmm. But you have to invest in their lives in order for them to invest in your lives. We live in a world now that, that you know, is, in, is getting increasingly tribal and we need to break down those tribal barriers. So if I care about my neighbor, my neighbor will care about me, right? And so right. the bias for everyone model is important in media, it's important in politics, and it's important in entrepreneurship. And which is why a lot of the companies that I try to support, even if they come from within Muslim circles, they have to have a spillover benefit for the rest of society. If they don't, then they're very insular models and mm -hmm. for many reasons they're going to fail. Do you struggle with deen and dunya balance in your life? Meet Salam.app, a Muslim social network where your ego, nafs, is not in the center. It is a place to feed your soul with daily inspiration, to make new Muslim friends and connect with Ummah. Visit www.salam.app and download free for your iPhone or Android. That's very insightful. That's very insightful. So this is what we call, I guess, three modes are to engaging with community, isn't it? Like, as you yeah. said, it's very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So, I mean, what was your major when you were um, studying at uh, UC Berkeley? So my father was a civil structural engineer. 
mm-hmm. which meant that my brother was a civil structure engineer, which meant that <laughs> I was a civil structure engineer. I mean, look, I, I don't fault immigrant communities for pushing their kids indirectly or directly into careers that they feel are going to be successful. It's part of the immigrant mentality that, you know, if you come from, from, come from, from a from a place where you're afraid for your financial security, you're going to do that. Um, but what but what happened is that I found myself. I was working in San Francisco. My first job out of college, I was working in San Francisco, building streetcars and working on the cable cars and the streetcars in San Francisco, which was fun. But it really wasn't what I wanted to do. But mm-hmm. I was lucky because that was in the mid 1990s, with this thing called the internet was happening just down the road, and it just galvanized my attention. I'm like. You know, I don't. I, do I want to tell my kids I was there when it happened, or do I want to tell my kids I was a part of that revolution? I see. And so, so you, I am. Yeah. You were a mechanical engineer, right? That's civil engineer. In cars, yeah. but then you kind of software. Yeah, yeah. I see. That's so I was I was I was building buildings and roads and train lines and you know stuff like that and and immediately I I learned how to code enough so that a startup would hire me. And um, I quit my job. I joined a startup. My parents freaked out. <laughs> um, I, I that startup failed. I did another startup. That startup failed. And then um, I uh, I founded my own startup, which is a, my first venture backed startup back in 1999 to 2000. Wow. Um, and that's the first time where people had actually invested, you know, uh, you know, two million, one and a half to two million dollars in my company. I hired ten people. Um, tried to patent our technology and like we really started moving forward. What was really interesting about it is Silicon Valley, even in those days, the reason I was able to, to get that off the ground is because there was a Muslim network in Silicon Valley that had been there since the beginnings of Silicon Valley. And my investment capital came from Muslim investors. My accelerator space was a Muslim owned accelerator space. I, I helped staff my company through my Muslim networks. We started getting business deals through my Muslim networks. And even though my company was not majority Muslim, um, what, what about your it was product? still a Muslim I mean, network, then, yeah. I think uh, mm-hmm. we'll come to your product for a second. So, I mean, I'm trying to understand, like, I'm just trying to put myself, I guess, in your shoes at the moment. So you were a mechanical engineer doing this, and then you see, you notice things in society, this internet thing is taking on, and you just ju- jump right to it. Like, that's that's a big risk, right? Isn't it? Like, like It is, it is, but it was so exciting. I mean... You know, when you're in when you're when you're in Silicon Valley, at least in those days, you could just go to a coffee shop and just be quiet and listen to the conversations that were happening around you. And everybody was animated about the possibilities that the internet brought. Everybody was talking about, I mean, the sky was the limit. And uh, and, and and it was it was just too hard to be in that kind of infectious environment and not be a participant. Right. Like I just didn't. You were right in the middle of it. Yeah, I was right in the middle of it. It's like, well, I can continue, you know, crunching numbers to like figure out how a train can navigate a corner or I can or I can do this. And and it was a time where there was a lot of silly money around. Like, you know, my first startup, it was literally writing something on a napkin and having, you know, people pull out their their checkbooks. I mean, it, it just wasn't something that would like happen today. But back then, the exuberance was so real. Right. Um, and alhamdulillah, you know, we actually got really far. I mean, we, we actually got, I, I think if it wasn't for the recession of 2001, we would have, we would have actually made it. We would have actually. There was a dot-com bubble, isn't it? Around yeah, that time. but we were, we were part of that dot-com bubble. And so, you know, um, that ended up being a series of ups and downs. Uh, but, but what was happening also on the side of this is that I was also asking myself a really fundamental question. What does this thing called the internet mean for this Muslim identity that I've been working on my whole life. Mm-hmm. 
how can this internet thing help make our community a better community? How can it serve our community? How can it make us ask the questions we need to ask? How can it uh, make us um, even out the discrepancies within our communities? And, and these questions were really foundational at the time for Muslims. We weren't used to having open, interesting conversations uh, about difficult topics with each other. We weren't used to using technology to make our, to enhance our lives. Psst. If you are an entrepreneur with a product or service for the Muslim market, let's get in touch. We are halal.ad, a marketing agency and ad network for the ever-growing Muslim market. We can help you reach millions of Muslims to grow your business. Visit www.halal.ad for a 30-minute free consultation. Now back to the show. So there are two things that I, I, I created on the side when I was working at my first startup. One was Zabia, which was simply created because uh, a bunch of us were like working late nights and we wanted to like meet at restaurants. And so I put up a webpage of the halal restaurants that we knew of. And I asked people to like, you know, hey, if you know of any, let me know. I see. And I realized when I was looking at the traffic that people were going to it from like, it wasn't just my friends, right? And I was like, oh, well then I think there's probably a need for this. And so I actually set up the website at the time, just thinking I was doing a public service. And and then the the amount of interest that started getting, and there were only 200 restaurants that I could find in, in America at the time. And we've gone from 200 restaurants to now 8,000, 9,000 restaurants. Wow. Um, so, so it was the big, it was the beginning of a wave. When, but when, I think when it was, was the beginning. It? When yeah. was it? What, what time? Like the 2000? That was 1998. 1998. Wow. Yeah, 1998 is when I started Zabia, and then and then a few years later in 2001, right before 9/11, actually, I started um, a website called Alt Muslim, mm -hmm. which was meant to have these kind of very important, difficult conversations about what it means to be a Muslim in America or Muslim in the West, actually. And we uh, we got kind of contributors from all over the world, from Europe, from Australia, from the UK, Canada. Um, and we tried to have like really interesting, difficult conversations, but all from a place of we love our community and we love our faith, but we're going to have some really difficult conversations because if we don't have these difficult conversations, Who will? other people are other people are going to have those conversations without us. You see. Right. Like Alt Muslim yeah, so. stands for Alter. Well, it, I named it based on so back before the Internet, back before mm -hmm. the Web, okay. there was these things called Usenet news groups. Oh, yeah. OK, OK. Back in back in the bulletin boards, and they were like alt dot and a subject. I see. Right? I and see. so, so I actually model it after that. See, people today they're like, oh, is that like an alt right or whatever? Like, no, no, no. <laughs> like back then, this was this was pre-internet digital culture. So that's where alt Muslim, and then and then there was a spinoff called alt Muslima, which is still around now. Um, uh, alt Muslim is actually going going through a reorganization at this mm. point. Um, it's going to be reinvented. The media space is a very difficult space, but um, but I still think there's promise there. Um, but the thing, the important thing is, is that this the internet broke down a lot of barriers in global Muslim communities, mm -hmm. where a lot of Muslims around the world grew up in bubbles. Yes. Muslims are like the people around me, and what the internet did is it it put us face to face with a couple things. It put us face to face with Muslims who are devout Muslims who do not practice like us. Mm -hmm. And we started realizing, oh, well, the Muslims in Indonesia, the Muslims in Africa, they practice Islam very differently than what I was taught. And what, what I was taught was the way. And so and then not only that, but then it put people in touch with the different schools of thought and the different arguments about different issues. And people started real. I mean, it was a destabilizing thing at first. People were like, well, what is this? This Islam that I thought was this one thing is now a million things. 
And I don't know what, and then it also put Muslims in touch with people who hate them. For yeah. a lot of Muslims, it was the first time that they actually were in touch with people who hated you. And it was a very difficult thing for people to take, you know? Um, and it took probably 10, 20 years for Muslims to go from being shocked by that to understanding that there, it's a reality out there that we have to deal with. And I think over the last 10, 20 years, we've gone from being hyper agitated about all these things, these sensor, sensory overload, to understanding that, you know, we've got a big diversity of opinion in Muslim communities. Muslims around the world practice Islam in multiple different ways. And by and large, most of them are legitimate expressions of Islam. And, you know, we're not going to freak out every time someone burns a Quran, because guess what? There are people out there that hate <laughs> you. And there's nothing you can do to stop them. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, it's taken this adjustment period, but but this is what I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be part of that transition from a community, from multiple communities that were isolated from each other to global communities that were connected to each other and respectful of their differences. And I hope I had a little bit to, to a little bit of a part to play in that transition. I see that that's very insightful, like because for, for, for me that to, to get this picture that from those uh, period of time it's i think it's something you know i think you have to be there to explain it but you you've lived in both of those worlds right so you you can see the difference between the two absolutely 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 i mean it was a similar experience i mean a similar experience for me as well you know you know i am originally from uzbekistan coming to denmark i exactly maybe it's not exactly the same but but i kind of follow what you just said when you're getting out yeah. in a foreign environment you begin to question everything your identity and why oh, you sure. believe what you believe the minute you land in denmark you're like what what, is, what does it mean to be muslim here in denmark exactly you know and it's, exactly. and it's and especially when there are people around you who are like kind of suspicious of you <laughs> especially i came just right in 2003 about two years after 9 11 and yeah. on the tv is a big bird of people and trying to blow up things i just kind of begin to question yeah. who am yeah. i am i part of this or what yeah. you know yeah like i want you want to be a part of the community that you live in but like you know there's only so much you can push right i mean yeah. i mean if, if, if people you have to draw a line somewhere where like i'm willing to tolerate your intolerance of me but only to a point at some point, if you're threatening my family, I've got to like put my walls up. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's very interesting. So, uh, Shahi, tell us more about that. I think around that time, as you mentioned, you already you 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 went for the internet. You went for the startups and internet. Uh, you know, entrepreneurship. Can you guys just give us like a orbit? What kind of uh, like you already started mentioning the Zabiha and alt Muslim. Well, what, yeah. what what else did you do in the doing this area? And or maybe just if you want to deep dive into Zabiha, you're more than welcome because it's already established. No, I mean, I mean, I think the 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 question I ask myself, you know, I started Zabiha six years before Yelp, and mm -hmm. you know, so the question I ask myself is why didn't I just? I mean, Zabiha is the second oldest restaurant guide of any kind on the internet. Wow. I'm like, well, if I was there that early, why didn't I create something of mass appeal? Right. And so these are the lessons you learn when you're doing these kinds of things. It's like, you know, you can be innovative for our community, but you can also be innovative for the world in general. Mm -hmm. And I ascribe, you know, one of the one of the kind of journeys I've taken is that I, as much as I want to help my community, I also want to help the world. So when I want to do something innovative, I want to do something innovative that, yes, that benefits our community, but that also benefits society at large. So a perfect example of this is, is one of my later startups, uh, Zakatify. Mm -hmm. Right now, Zakatify, on, on, which is a Zakat management tool for Muslims, on the surface of it, it seems like a buy us for us model, right? You're building something that, that serves a need just for Muslims. But what's really interesting about Zakatify is that as a model, it doesn't exist for anybody. 
Um, we have a partnership with PayPal that's helped us build this, uh, this, this app. And they actually had to build unique tech for it that didn't exist before. Because what we wanted to do wasn't done for anybody. Interesting. And, and, and as you might guess, the next step for Zakatify is to do it for the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Because it hasn't been done for the mainstream. And so we're going we're gonna, to, um, you know, turn this thing from a something that benefits just Muslims to something that benefits society as a whole. And again, if we can do that successfully and people ask questions like, where did this come from? Oh, it came from Muslims and their charitable obligations. And that turned into this thing that's benefiting everybody. Oh, great. Now you've shown people that you care that Islam is relevant to them, that Muslims are relevant to them, that this world would be a sadder place if Muslims weren't a part of it. Absolutely. Right? That's the objective. You know, I mean, it's, it seems hard for people who are used to just hearing about all the bad things Muslims do on the news that you have to fundamentally believe that Islam was put here to make humanity a better place, whether or not they're Muslim. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, absolutely. I agree. I agree 100%. If you fundamentally believe that, then you have to act on that. And if you and if you act on it properly and you don't leave these values behind and you benefit society around us, we solve a lot of problems at one fell, with one fell swoop. Islamophobia will go. People feel like you're you're making their lives more secure and more fruitful. The Islamophobia goes away. Right. Hate goes away. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what you're trying to say is that well, I mean, if someone, I mean, I understand there's this very small, tiny group of Muslims, you know, we call them Muslims, they call them Muslims. So they do this horrendous things in the name of Islam and the media focus on them just, you know, exaggerating and just painting the all two, two billion Muslims with a single brush. We understand right. that. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, and there, then there are people saying, oh, Islam means peace, but that's, but I mean, what you're trying to say is that that's okay in Dandy, but that's not enough, right? We need to show by actions and that's the best way of doing it, isn't it? That's right. One of the things I tell people, so, so for those people who think that Islam inherently holds back humanity, what I tell them is this, you can take a Muslim from a war-torn place like Somalia or Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, you transplant them to a place like the West, and they thrive. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you? Now, they didn't leave their Islam behind when they came here. Mm -hmm. What they left behind is a geopolitical environment that held them back. Yes. And if it was, the, if it was their Islam that held them back, then you could transplant them to London or New York or whatever, and they would still be backward. It will but be not. Fail. Yeah. But they're not. Muslims, by and large, are more upwardly mobile and successful, at least here in America, than, than their counterparts. They just are. You know, Muslims in America are one of the highest, you know, per capita income groups in, in, in America. And, and so, so, so Islam isn't holding them back. Mm -hmm. It's geopolitics. And so, you know, we, we need to be addressing those geopolitical, geopolitical situations around the world so that Muslims can emerge into their own right and thrive. And I do think, you know, I, if I didn't truly believe that Islam had something to benefit humanity, I wouldn't do the work that I do. I would rather just be an ethical person in the mainstream. I see. Absolutely. I mean, so I think that I think um, that's that's very interesting. So let me ask you this. Like you mentioned it from the very beginning. So for you, the Islam's identity was very crucial for you. Like as of today, like, you know, you have this question usually like what is your work life balance? I'm not going to ask the question, but I'm going to ask you something similar. Like what is the dunya in deen balance? Like, like how would you would you would you would you look at it? In, 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 does it make sense? Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. I'm a big fan of combining work and play. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I bring my kids into my startups, you know, I, I, I take work calls on vacations, you know, and it's not because I'm trying to like, let my work life take over my life, but actually it's the other way around. I want my home life to, you know, infiltrate my work life because I don't see work and home life as being inherently separated all that much. Right. I mean, we're the prophetic example is like eight hours sleep, eight hours family, eight hours work. Um, I kind of do all those all mixed into, <laughs> mixed into each other. Um, and, and, and what I'm trying to, you know, I, it's very important for those of us who have kids to model what it means to be a Muslim in a way that they don't emerge thinking that it's a burden. Mm-hmm. And I think right now, unfortunately, what we do with our kids is we're like, the sky is falling. Everyone hates us. Everyone hates us. Now go out into the world and be a Muslim. It doesn't make sense, does it? Why would they do it? <laughs> why would it, why would, or they see infighting in our communities. You know, we go, we, we tear each other down. We treat each other like crap. Everyone hates us. The minute they are free to do what, what they want to do, they'll just leave Islam. And we see this happening, by the way. We see this happening all, all left and right. And, and I don't know if I really blame them. I mean, if I was in an environment where like my parents were strict and dogmatic and forced me to pray and, you know, complained about how the world is against them and complained about how everything's awful, you have to show people the beauty of Islam and being Muslim or else they're never gonna, it's never gonna in, ingrain in them. And so I try to tell, I try to tell my kids, I said, look, I tell my kids, I want you to study every faith tradition that's out there. I want you to look deeply into it. I want you to ask every difficult question there is about Islam to me. But I'm gonna show you that I've chosen to be Muslim and express my Islam in my work because I think it is a net positive in my life. Mm-hmm. And I can't explain that to you. I can only show it to you. I see. And so, so I hope when they look at me and they see that I'm happy, I'm content, I am optimistic, even, you know, I actually give talks a lot to Muslim students on campuses and the thesis of my talk is there's never been a better time to be Muslim. And people are like, oh, you're nuts. This is the age of Trump and war or whatever. And I'm like, you're focusing so, on the So tell thing. me, ex- explain, explain on that. That's gonna be interesting, isn't it? So, so here's the thing, you know, I, I we, we have, there's nothing I find more distasteful than privileged people wearing the cloak of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with being privileged as long as you own it and you use it to help others. And Muslims in the West, by and large, I mean, I know there's discrepancies within our communities and we have to address those, but by and large, Muslims are a fairly privileged class of people in America compared to Muslims in the broader Muslim world. Interesting, okay. Um, and if we don't acknowledge that privilege, we can't use that privilege. You know, by definition, if you feel that the world is after you and under assault, you're going to spend all your energy defending yourself. It's a survival technique. Yeah, playing a victim. By definition, by definition, you cannot help anyone else when you're in that mode. You're too busy protecting yourself. Now, Mm -hmm. if you acknowledge the privilege that you have, if you acknowledge, for example, here in America, that, you know, in the age of Trump, Americans by the tens of thousands went to airports to defend the most vulnerable Muslims in the world that everyone from corporate America to Hollywood to whatever are tripping over themselves to, to at the very least virtue signal that they are in support of Muslims being involved in society. You know, putting Muslim women in job and ads and, you know, putting Muslim characters on TV and allowing Muslims to create their own content on TV and things like that. Um, doors are opening for us. People wanna hear us talk for ourselves. People wanna, people wanna hold us up in the onslaught of what Trump has unleashed. People mm-hmm. want to, you know, I am confident that if anyone, if a white supremacist were to come after me, that 10 of my fellow Americans who are not Muslim would jump in front of me to defend me. 
I'm fully confident of that. And maybe that's unique to America or North America, but I think generally humanity understands evil versus good. Yeah. And I think with the rise of this evil that's happened when you look at Christchurch and things like that, I think people are realizing now. And once you get off that fence to defend, you know, to, to oppose Islamophobia, you don't get back on that fence. I see. And I think that we've we've gone from people saying, Oh, Islamophobia, yeah, you're a bunch of privileged people. Well, you know, you're causing problems overseas. What is this? I, I shouldn't care about Islamophobia, to people saying Islamophobia is as real as any other bigotry, and we have to stomp it out like any other bigotry. And that's a huge shift. That's the one thing I'll thank Trump for is getting people off the fence on the fight against Islamophobia. <laughs> right. And so that now true. that we have that, now that we have that asset, now that we have the majority of people in our communities uh, who will side with us and not them, you know, how can I how can I say that I'm disadvantaged? I had multiple interviews after Trump was elected and people saying, how does it feel to be a Muslim in Trump's America? And I would say, well, not as bad as an undocumented immigrant. Not as bad as the average black man getting pulled over in an age where, you know, bigotry um, in law enforcement has been, you know, at epic proportions, you know. Well, what's the worst that's going to happen to me? I'm, you know, I, I'm a pretty privileged person. The worst that's going to happen to me is I'm late for a flight. Hmm. I see. I see. I see. I see. I'm not I, see gonna, I, I refuse. I refuse to put myself in the category of oppressed when there are real oppressed people out there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you 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 have a very valid point there. I mean, I think in general, as Muslims, I, mean, I think everywhere, not only the U.S., I think as we have to get yeah. up, get up from this bubble of being, yeah. playing the victim, right? And I mean, there's nothing that we're there's nothing that we are up against that previous generations of Muslims didn't have a hundred times over, and they still they didn't have a defeatist attitude, they didn't have a victim attitude. They're like, oh, we're ten people against a hundred. Yeah, we have God on our side. We'll mm -hmm. be fine. We we've lost that attitude. Now now we're just like, oh, you know. Everyone's going to come and get us. Everyone, we're going to lock our doors and we're going to like shut ourselves in. And 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 I, 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 we need to get back to a place where our communities feel empowered and brave. When did we become a bunch of cowards, man? Like seriously, <laughs> like what happened to us? You know, like maybe maybe we're not in the days of like the you know the old kind of warrior battles on battlefields. But my God, like get out there and be proud of who you are. Assert yourself. Don't be afraid to engage with your neighbors. Don't be afraid to engage with people who hate you. Don't be afraid to try something new that you think will benefit people. You know, my goal in life is to get Americans to just feel like Muslims are an asset to America. And I don't want to do it by silly PR campaigns. I want to do it by actually improving their lives. And so whatever work I do, I want to try to feel like, you know, people are feel included in that. So, you know, my work right now is basically about entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and incorporating Islamic values into that entrepreneurship for the benefit of everybody, right? So if people can benefit from the work that I do uh, and then they can tie it directly or indirectly to the fact that I'm a Muslim and that I believe it's a good thing to do, then I think I'll have done my job. I mean, I think that leads to our next question, like as I think, I think, so what is, what is, what does success means to you as a person, I guess, a Muslim and all this question in general, what, what does, what does it mean to you as of now? So, so I think, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with this kind of Venn diagram that yeah, is like yeah. what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what benefits the world and mm -hmm. what you can make money from. Mm -hmm. And like where those four circles overlap is like exactly what you need to be doing. Yeah. So Alhamdulillah, I've spent my whole adult life trying to get to that one place. And I think for the last five years and inshallah into the future, I think I'm, I've arrived there. You know, my goal is economic empowerment through entrepreneurship that brings on board people who have been marginalized and that benefits the communities in which we invest and doesn't take advantage of them. 
I see. So that's the space that I want to be in. That's awesome. I mean, I mean that line, that Venn diagram you mentioned. I think it's it's, it's a Japanese concept called ikigai. I yeah. think, isn't it? Yeah, I saw it somewhere. Yeah. That's very insightful. So I mean, what you're saying is that you kind of broadened your focus not only just Muslim minority communities, right? That's that's what's where yeah. it's going on. People because... who are off the grid. Absolutely. We 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 have you know look. You're you're as familiar with this as anyone. We're entering a very dangerous time in um in the global economy mm-hmm. where the haves are getting more and the have-nots are getting less. And with automation and with um, outsourcing and with all these different things, um, we are in danger of having a permanent underclass. Mm-hmm. And and if we don't adjust our business models and adjust the way that we invest and adjust the way that we empower, we're going to enable that. You know, like I'm really like, I look, I use Uber, right? But mm-hmm. I am completely cognizant of the fact that Uber is creating a class of, of, of workers that, that are going to be at subsistence level, right? And that a few benefit, like, you know, back, like 20 years ago, if a company sold for a billion or $2 billion, um, you know, the people who would actually benefit from that would be in the tens of thousands, if not more, you know, but like, you know, when, when, when I still remember when WhatsApp was purchased by, um, Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was purchased for something like a billion dollars in employees. You know, you had very few people benefiting from a purchase like that. I see. You know, and so, so the thing, the models are increasingly lopsided. You know, you have, you have, you know, I'm not interested in going, investing in a company, creating an, another Uber that where a few people benefit and a lot of people don't, and you salt the earth for future startups and you salt the earth in terms of the labor pool so that nothing can grow out of that. I mean, look, look at sustainable farming. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you plant in a sustainable way so that the, the soil in which you grew is fertile and can support future crops. We're not, we're not cultivating startups in the same way. I see. You know, we go in there, we make our quick buck and we leave and who cares about what we left behind? And so, uh, you know, the work with Frost Capital. So, you know, we'd started with the Finnis Labs in 2015, mm-hmm. trying to explore some of these challenges. How do we level the playing field? How do we how do we uh, support overlooked startups in post-conflict zones and in places that are off the grid? And now, um, with our acquisition by Frost Capital, we're moving headlong into that space where we're un- trying to unlock enough capital to go into these ecosystems and not just support companies that we think have high growth potential, but to try to build be, build companies and build ecosystems that allow whole societies to thrive so that more, much more money can be made, but also society as a whole is brought up to that level. Like I want people who may be in a refugee camp right now to actually see the possibility that they could be, you know, start their own company, right? I don't care if it's a startup, maybe it's, maybe it's just their own company. As long as they, they feel that that's an option for them, right? We, we have a world right now where people are like, I have two choices. I get a job where I'm dependent on somebody. And that third choice of like being in business for yourself, you know, 200 years ago, we were all entrepreneurs. We didn't go to business school or whatever. Just people, it was in our blood. And we've moved away from that ideal. And we need to move people back to that ideal. Because now <laughs> the tools to, to, to run your own business are all out there. Yeah. You know, if you, have, if you have a computer and an internet connection, you have access to tools that, that can really not just help you create a business, but help you create a global business. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And so, so, you know, I think we just need to help bring into that new world as many people as possible.
I see. I mean, what you're trying to like, I guess, explain is that I think I, I just heard a little little bit of uh, one of your talks, I guess, about it's all about the capitalism and Islam. Like, what is the relationship between them, right? I think. Can can you can you want to like explain right. a little bit? I mean, on I that mean, I, I I understand why people feel like capitalism is the problem, mm -hmm. but capitalism is an amoral system. Mm -hmm. It is only as moral as it is only as moral as the part as, as the players are. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at, you know, Islam did not come to get rid of the idea of capitalism. It came to give it a structure. Control, exactly. Yeah. Just like, just like it gave, it didn't, you know, Islam didn't outlaw, outlaw war. Mm -hmm. It simply gave war a structure to make it more just. More humane. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here are the rules of engagement, right? So similarly, Islam came to give commerce rules of engagement. That's why we are anti-usury. Right, mm -hmm. because we 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 don't believe as Muslims that just because you have money, you make money, you know, Out on of top money. of your money. Yeah. Like like because you're taking advantage of people's financial situations. Like that's a core principle in Islamic finance: is that do not take advantage, undue advantage of people's economic position to enrich yourself. Mm -hmm. Right, that if you're going to invest in somebody, do so in a way that that shares the risk. Yes. You have a risk, they have a risk, yes. right? That you're in it together as peers, not as master and servant, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all these different principles that we as Muslims can bring to a global economic system that makes the world better for everybody, right? And what we're what we're trying to do with what with 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 our funds uh, that we're bringing to the to the market is we're trying to see how many of those values we can put in place into the ecosystems in which we invest in. So that every single stakeholder, from the consumer to the to the laborer to the produce to the subcontractor to the to the employee to whatever, all feels like they're being they're benefiting from that ecosystem because that is the Islamic ideal. Absolutely, yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Agree with you on that one. I mean, that's so that that's your one of your. As I remember, this is. Uh, couple of months back, right? This you, you started originally yeah. Frost Capital, and that's what you guys are into. Yes. That's very inspiring. That's very inspiring. Yes. Is so it... so the Go quick ahead. story about Frost Capital was really interesting is that so so a couple years ago we had announced um a $250 million venture fund that would invest in Muslim startups around the Muslim world. I remember and that. this was a <laughs> yeah. So this was a partnership between Affinis Labs, my former company, um, Elixir Capital, which was uh, which was uh, based in Silicon Valley and investing uh, primarily in Southeast. Well, it was a global fund, but it was anchored a lot in Southeast Asia, and Mavcap, which is Malaysia's largest venture capital firm. Mm -hmm. And so, what happened is that as we tried to get that fund to the market, the geopolitics of the Muslim world got in the way. I see. Right, and and and, and you know, people can do the math. I mean, basically just. All the destabilization that happened between 2016 and now got in the way of that fund. But what's really interesting now is that um, so we actually, you know, Frost Capital as was actually help was created by the people at Elixir, and then they brought us back on board because as we were discussing how to get this fund rolling, we realized that we just needed to do it as one company. Mm -hmm. And we also realized that we couldn't do it alone. And so a big part of our strategy was to partner with a Silicon Valley giant, Frost and Sullivan, who uh, for 50, 60 years has been mapping ecosystems uh, and companies around the world. Um, and they have a thousand analysts that are doing deep dives on every sector and every vertical, um, every region in the world. And that kind of knowledge was really useful for us. And so once we did that, um, we, we, we emerged from that 
from that previous fund, we actually rolled, we had, we, we'd had some funds um, uh, ready for that. We actually just rolled that whole effort into our new effort. So, and in, 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 you know, basically that the fund that we announced three years ago is now open, but under Frost Capital. And now, but, but now we're in charge and we're not gonna let the ge geopolitical instability of the Muslim world get in our way. That's good news. That's good news. Yeah. So, I mean, let, let me ask you this, um, Shai, like uh, this, this capital fund, is it like you guys, how do you engage? You guys find out and you engage with the, um, you know, potential uh, parties on your own or is it open that like people pitch in? How does it work? So uh, I am, we're in the process of identifying um, uh, companies that are kind of in their growth stage. Mm -hmm. So not seed, you know, unfortunately not seed, seed stage yet. I mean, rare exceptions will do the seed stage, but right now, because we just want to get ourselves kind of sure. um, uh, up and running, we're seeking growth stage companies that uh, abide by these values and that are in, you know, that also have a high growth potential. And most importantly also, that they, they, they make it in some way easier for future companies to be built. So we're, we're looking for companies that actually strengthen economic ecosystems. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so you know, most, most of our yeah. listeners, and the reason I'm asking this question is I just want to benefit, uh, hopefully, inshallah, benefit some of the listeners is that, you know, this uh, terms like seed stage, growth stage, we both know that, yes. but can you, do you want to explain what do you mean to growth? Oh, sure. What are you looking into? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, so seed stage are, are basically people who have a minimum, um, like a, 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 you know, it's a, it's a time where you've built you've built enough of a product that you can start charging for it, right? Mm -hmm. So, it's your minimum viable product. Like you've yes. got it out there, it's got some traction, you're starting to get some revenue, and that's fantastic. By growth stage, what I mean is that companies that are like they've perfected their product, they've got a steady revenue stream, um, it, they've looked like they kind of handled all the initial problems of getting to market. And now they're just poised to just take that and amplify it. And they've got a path to do it. They just need investment in order to enable that, whether it's, uh, you know, increasing their productivity or going into a new market or, or, or something like that, but basically a growth stage. And I that's see. the stage right now that we're investing in. I see. Um, and ideally, ideally we want to, to go for companies that somehow benefit the ecosystems in which they're in which they exist that is the focus i see so it's not only that is for the, the focus of our first yeah we've got three funds coming out so the focus of our first one is basically an ecosystem fund where we're trying to like go for companies that are gonna be a part of building a, you know a foundation upon which multiple other companies can be built i see do you know any other like investment firms vcs doing something similar like that i i don't know personally well there are a lot of funds out there that are social impact funds. Okay. Uh, and we work with, we work with a lot of them. I, I'm, I'm in touch with a lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, 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 you know, when I, when I, when I, you know, my, my circle of, of, of contacts in the VC world, they tend to be either traditional VCs in Silicon Valley that are mm -hmm. doing kind of like mainstream kind of stuff or they're social impact funds. And so they're going to particular regions in the world and they're trying to do something very similar to what we're doing. Now they don't have like, this value system that we're trying to in include in it, but you know, by by my most accounts were aligned. Um, so I, you know, people who are working in like Central and South America, people who are working in Africa, people who are working in places like Pakistan, um, you know, where they're 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 trying to support these ecosystems uh, in a very regional perspective. I see. Um, also, also um, Palestinians as well. There's a lot of cool stuff happening in Palestine. Um, so so I feel like we're all on the same page we're just each bringing us something different to the table I see. right like we don't for example like unlike a lot of these other a lot of these other funds 
we don't have a particular regional focus. Our focus is actually global and our focus is primarily in Muslim communities, not exclusively. Um, so, uh, so we will, you know, we'll partner with others where, where possible. We'll, um, we, 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 we work with a lot of, um, we work with a lot of accelerators around the world that may be a good source of deal flow for us. So like if they've got, they've kind of graduated a company that seems to be on this upward trend, that's a good time for, you know, of them to flag us and let us know that there's a real good growth opportunity here that we can, we can jump in on. Um, so, so, I mean, alhamdulillah, there's a, it's a pretty cooperative network of people uh, that are out there. Um, and but my biggest challenge, I think, moving forward is deal flow. It's mm -hmm. finding these hidden gems that have good growth potential that meet our value criteria. And, and then uh, seeing if we can do that. I'll give you a good, let me give you a good example of the type of company that like meets this criteria. There's a, so the predecessor fund to the fund that we launched uh, was a fund that was focused in Southeast Asia by Elixir Capital. And one of the companies they invested in was a mom and pop recycling company in, um, I think it was in Aceh province in uh, Indonesia. And they uh, had a company that was basically recycling. I mean, mm -hmm. There was there were some innovative ways in the ways they were kind of scaling, but it was basically you know recycling plastic and, and glass and things like that. So the predecessor fund invested four and a half million dollars in them. This is a this is a husband and wife team that was like high school high school level, right? They didn't go to business school. They didn't you know, but with the right guidance, they were able to grow that company to ten thousand employees, ninety percent of whom were women. Wow! Became the second largest waste processing company in that province and are on track to IPO. I see. So now no one else, no traditional fund would have even seen any potential in this in this company. I see. Right? But if you're looking for the right thing, if you're looking for those, you know, who, where are your values aligned? Where's the potential that people are overlooking because they're used to looking for an Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. They're not used to looking for a, a mm -hmm. husband and wife team where the woman is wearing a hijab and they, and they're, you know, they look like a traditional Indonesian family. They don't look like, you know, they're not from Jakarta. They're not like, so, so people need to open their eyes a little bit. I believe that talent is, talent is equally distributed. I don't think resources are equally distributed. And I think there's That's a true. lot, I mean, just to be blunt about it, there's a lot of money to be made by people finding that talent and investing in them. So if you don't care about the social impact, at least care about your pocketbook, right? Mm -hmm. You know? At the end of the I day, see. I don't really care. I mean, as long I as see. you invest in, in, in off the grid talent, um, then my job is done. I mean, I mean, uh, Shahid, uh, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is uh, what I would like to ask you is, I think it was part of the, um, one of the last few questions I'd like to ask. Look, I think, uh, I think uh, most of our uh, listeners, right, they will be probably, you know, Muslim men and women, they are in the middle ages. They probably, as you, as you mentioned, maybe they also finished their studies, you know, they're working, maybe they don't, they're not happy where they are right now. Maybe they're looking for a purpose or, you know, so for those kind of people, like, I know you're very, very into entrepreneurship, as you said, like you also mentioned, like a couple of hundred years ago, everybody was an entrepreneur because they, everyone had to wake up and have to make an earning, right? There was nothing yeah, stable, yeah. right? They have to embrace the risk. So what would you say, like, what would your advice would be uh, in a, in a, you know, if, in, in, in a short way, what would you say? So my advice for people is, so, so 
I'm look, I'm all for risk taking, but I do believe that people need to be stable and and make their decisions in 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 sure. not in a in a for pressure way. So I actually tell because most of the people who approach me are like working traditional jobs and they want to get into entrepreneurship. And so my advice to them generally mm -hmm. is to start something on the side. And my rule yes. of thumb is generally if you can make enough money on your side gig to like make up like half of your salary and you feel like there's like if you put your full time into it you could ramp up to your full salary pretty quickly then that's the time to quit your job and to like you know either either you know use your savings or an angel investment to get to that point where you can at the very least sustain yourself because once you sustain yourself then you're not in imminent danger of folding like okay you can take a you can take a deep breather at that point and then figure out now okay great i can support myself doing this how do i take it to the next level where i can scale up and start hiring people and start really amplifying this and because i can spend my whole day I, I doing like this that. i'm not under pressure because look i am a big believer in work-life balance i don't believe in putting your family in jeopardy just because you're chasing this dream of entrepreneurship you have responsibilities yes. right so so get to that point and you know make it take an educated risk right because look most startups sure. are going to fail and when they fail you have to be in a position where you can pick yourself up and start over again what you don't want to be is in a place where you're in financial ruin right so so yes. so so you know they're and, and this is the same reason people are like they come to me and they're like the first thing i want to do is go out there and fundraise i'm like no because like you don't even have a product yet right and we, we we're way mm -hmm. beyond those times where people are going to throw money at you for an idea on a napkin they want to see that you've got the passion and you've got the ability to deliver so deliver it as a side gig I have a side company that's making half my salary. And if I have this much investment, I can scale it up really quickly. And at the very least I can support myself. And then I can start making accommodations to hire other people and grow this even more. That's a good time. I see. So what you're saying is don't destroy your yeah. old house until you build a new one, at least halfway yeah. through and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and make sure exactly. yeah. it's like a transition period. It's not like one or the other one. Exactly. I really like the advice. Thank you very much. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, as, I mean, I've asked uh, some questions. Do you think is there any other questions I should have asked? I didn't. Or you wanna you wanna say your like last words to, so, the, to inspire the young young Muslims? Uh, uh, there's there's generation? there's yeah. Let's, let's take this up to a higher level, right? Um, okay. You you've been in this space a long time, so you've seen this. Is that because mm. of the state of Muslims in this world, we're very um, traumatized people. It's either it's either real trauma or it's trauma by proxy, but it's trauma nonetheless. Yes. And because yes. of that, we're actually fairly competitive with each other. Um, I asked this question when I was at the Harvard Islamic Economy Summit, I asked this question of the audience. I said, how many of you prefer selling to your non-Muslim customers versus your Muslim customers? Nearly everyone raised their hand. And the reason being is that we're, we're very harsh with each other. We're harsh with each other. We will complain to Muslim companies in ways that we will not complain to non-Muslim companies. I know that. And and as entrepreneurs, we will cheat each other. We will we will we will not abide by contracts. We will steal from each other. We will we will um, go to war with each other instead of cooperating. We're our own worst enemies. And whether we're in the entrepreneurship space or in the social space or whatever, we this is we are entering a very dangerous time, where are we're letting our trauma get the best of us. And we're we're acting like a community without mercy. When mercy is the number one quality that we are lectured about mm -hmm. in terms of being Muslim, we need to reintroduce mercy into our spaces. So as an entrepreneur, that means letting go of the reins a little bit and cooperating with other people, okay. sharing sharing the, the the success with other people, 
Don't think I, uh, I want to have a hundred percent of my companies. I can get a hundred percent of the returns. Well, guess what? You can't do it alone. No. At some point you've got to work with other people. You have to start building communities of trust where we're not taking advantage of our situations, which is again, goes completely against the Islamic ethic of Muslims and commerce. And we have to be more forgiving of each other in public spaces. We, we, we don't, we, we don't, we, we attack each other even without considering whether people's intentions are good. I mean, I mean, you reached the like very, as you said, you just, you just, <laughs> this is not one of the last question, right? I mean, so, so what you're saying is, look, guys, I mean, I understand. I, I, I've been there. I mean, we live this, uh, we, I, I experienced what you're saying. So I think here's the question. Look, as you said, I agree with you. Like we are the, like, even every time we pray, right? We say, Bismillah. Rahman yeah. Rahim. But but we yeah. are we are constantly saying that, but but in reality, what you're saying is that we are deprived of that mercy. What do you think what do you think? Why do you think is that? It's like we are not really understanding, embracing the idea. What's going on? Or or I mean let me tell you just sharing my personal opinion and I don't know, uh, I don't know. I want to know yours, I guess. Some you know the um, I read this the uh, I think Abraham Maslow's the hierarchy of needs, right? Yes, yes. That's I mean, a really good reference point. Yeah, so I mean, he explains. Look, when people are in the lower, uh, you know, when they are deprived of security, when people lacking this, so what they do is that they are not. Uh, I would say they are in a way in, in a survival mode, right? Remember, so yeah. that totally changed how we affect. So when we are afraid, when we are fe we are fearful, we just, uh, I guess, you know, throughout all those uh, values outside, and we want to see only on our for us you said right just for us we don't care about the altruism etc etc do you think is it because we are most like some people some some muslims unfortunately is they are under you know under all this pressure is is it because of that or or something else what's your take on that <sighs> the the muslim world is undergoing a serious shift probably one of the biggest shifts in our history um, there's a technological shift, mm -hmm. there's a social shift, there's a religious shift, there's an economic shift, there's, there's political shifts. I mean, there's all these shifts that are happening. And it's a really destabilizing time to be Muslim. I mean, think about it. For generations, you know, it didn't really matter. You know, there wasn't much of a change from one century to the next century. And then in the last two centuries, it's been really tremendous. And in the last 20 years, it's been crazy. Mm -hmm. And and I think we just react to that. I think we we've all retreated to our we, we've all retreated into survival mode. Why do Muslims kill Muslims? If we're part of this one big ummah, why do Muslims kill Muslims? And Muslims are killing Muslims all over the world because we've retreated to these tribal identities out of out of perceived threat to our lives. Right now, you know, a hundred years ago, did we do that? Not really. You know, we tolerated differences a hundred years ago in many ways that we don't tolerate now. You know, it's weird in places like Iraq where 50 years ago, people were marrying in between Sunni, Shia and Sunni. And then now you look at Iraq and those lines are lines are across which people kill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, it makes no sense. It's not natural for us. But what we have to do is we have to use the tools that we have to get ourselves out of the spunk as soon as possible, to not let the geopolitics of the world dictate to us who we are. We are not defined by these wars. We're not defined by this instability. We're not defined by poverty. We're not defined by any of that stuff. We are defined by a tradition that is a 1400 year old tradition that is a good tradition 
that is a important tradition, that is a, tr a tradition that has something to contribute to us and the world. Mm -hmm. And we can't forget that. Because if we forget that, then we've just become animals. Yes. Back to basic instincts, right? Yeah, we, we just revert to our basic instincts. Like, you know something? If I have to kill my neighbor to protect my family, that's what I'm going to do. And we have to get beyond that. We have to rise to the level where which God expects us to rise. That's been very insightful, Shait. Thank you very much. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, I think I am a very optimistic and hopeful person for not just Muslim communities, but for humanity. But it, it's going to take us doing a lot of brave work yes. to put ourselves out there, to take risks, to show people that a better future is possible. I agree, 100%. Um, please uh, tell where people can find you or follow you or more. So, you know, those who oh, are absolutely. interested. Um, uh, you can, uh, the easiest way to follow me is to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Shahed. Um, and, uh, my company is Frost Capital at frostcap.com. And, um, uh, you can see some of my writings and my appearances at shahed.com. And, um, I hope to be a part of a more global conversation with everyone. Sounds good. You know, what we do is we also leave these things, um, at, at, at show notes. And, uh, thank you very much, Shahed. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, you're welcome. Alaikum salam. Dear listener, based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams, and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. For show notes and questions for episodes, please visit www.muslimsonfire.com. Subscribe on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like our show, please rate, share with friends, and leave a review. With your help, it will enable us to reach more people and change their lives for the better. Stay tuned. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum. <laughs>